If you have your Bibles, then please uh, turn with me to that remarkable narrative there in chapter 2 of the second uh, book of Kings. Uh, it's one of those glorious stories that we should tell our children and we should tell everyone about ongoing, the continuing of the work of God in the world at any point in history. Elijah is a remarkable prophet and he's about to die. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Ah, well, God knows. God knows what's going to happen. And he's already been at work in providing for the future of his own work. See, God's work is in God's hands. It's not in ours. It was left to us. To be honest, we struggle. And we do struggle on time. But the remarkable truth here is that God is on the throne, as we've just sang. And there is that anthem of praise around his throne this morning in that crescendo of praise, worship, and adoration which is due to the thrice holy one. Because God, our God, is still on the, phone, on the throne. Despite what's going on in our world in this 21st century so-called enlightened day and generation which we live, I would seek to argue with that statement all day long. It's not an enlightenment, it's a darkening. There is a depression, there is a hopelessness filled in the root of our DNA of our society. And men and women are crying out in all the wrong places, in all the wrong places. But we find our encouragement and we find God's word for our own hearts to strengthen us this morning. Yes, it's rooted in history, two kings. Have you tried reading through one and two kings lately? And all those eastern names and all those difficult sounding names. And it's sad you skip over half of them and how they all relate the one to the other. It's crammed full of history. But it's God's history. God has raised those kings up and God has put them down. God has allowed some to reign for years and for others. A few days and weeks and months. Why? Because God is the God of Israel. He is the eternal God. He is the almighty God. They are his people. What have they got to do? Any right to live as they please and to create idols and to worship with wickedness all around and put to one side the word of God. What right have they? They've got absolutely none. And yet they did it. They did it. And they did it with a brazenness. Shaking their fist in the face of God. Yes, we know you, the Almighty God, but hey, we're getting on with our lives. It's history. It's history. And yet, history is the vehicle that we can see. It is the window that we can see how God has worked in our world. In our world. And He's still working today in our world and will work. Why? Because it's His world. And he has got purposes. And he is going to get on with doing his eternal purposes for the salvation of souls. Even regarding, regardless when men and women, his own people, are full of sin and wickedness. He is the sovereign, almighty Lord uh, God. And so it's written for uh, our benefit. The prophets, uh, they teach us to see the finger of God in history. 
the way in which God has impressed his greatness and his purposes upon his own nation of Israel, yes, but upon the church of Jesus Christ. His people, we see his hand and his finger written through that prophetic voice. But the remarkable thing about chapter 2 is there's a sense of a pause here in the narrative of this king reigning and dying and the next king coming to the throne. There's a dramatic pause. It is a remarkable narrative. It is full of the dynamism of the power of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 isn't all about the kings. It's about God, and it's about God's people, and it's about God's prophets, and it's about how God is sustaining his work in the midst of such a godless, desperate situation, his own people being assimilated into the values and the beliefs uh, and the, uh, the, the attitudes of their known world around them. This is about God. And so we find a pause because... In verse 18, Ahaziah, the rest of his acts, he did. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? Chap beginning of chapter 3, now Jehoram uh, comes to the throne there uh, in the north and Jehoshaphat in the south. And on we go, reading more about the kings. And yet all the time God is at work. See, God is taking home his servant Elijah. Remarkable things happen in the ministry of Elijah. And at this point, Elisha, who has been in his wings, so to speak, and who has remained very faithful to his master, uh, and somehow there is this awareness uh, amongst them and amongst these prophets that Elijah is actually going to die and be taken. Uh, well, not die, actually, but his, his life is going to come to an end and he's going to be taken home. There's supernaturally, miraculously, mysteriously, there is this awareness amongst them in the spiritual realm. His ministry's ended. And he's going home. Well, I don't think any one of us know the day of our death, do we? Or the day of our rapture or translation into the immediate presence of God. But this is what is happening that is happening here. The greatness of this prophet, and yet God's work is going to go on, and we have this pause, this window, as Elijah in this remarkable image of the chariots of fire and the horses of God with fire all around them comes to take the servant home. But Elisha, this is the first thing we notice, he, he persists. He persists for the purpose. That's the first thing. The persistence, did you notice it? Three times he says to his master, Elijah, I will not leave you. I don't care what's happening. I'm not going to leave you, even if you were taken from me. I'm not going to, I'm going to be with you to the end. I will not, I will. He's persisting in the purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is the work of God. He's seen the work of God at first hand. His master, Elijah, has done remarkable miracles. He knows all about the power of God at Elijah's hand. Oh, my word. Wouldn't you want to be there alongside? Wouldn't you want to be the right-hand man? If there's stones being thrown, well, you can push him to the front, can't you? Your master to the front, and you just kind of hide behind him. Ah, but now he's going to be taken from him. Here's the challenge. But at this point, he said, no, I'm not going to leave you. I know too much about you, O God. I know too much about the anointing of the Spirit of God upon your ministry. I know what God can do despite what your people are engaging in. 
I've seen the grace of God ministering to this one here and that one here, and I've seen the power of God demonstrated in the face of 450 prophets on Mount Carmel. I've seen what you can do with your own fire. I'm not going to leave you. Not going to leave you. See, he persists. Why? Because it's about the work of God in the world through history. God raises up an Elijah, and he takes him home. Ah, there's a little pause here. Well, what's God doing? Well, he's raising up another prophet, another remarkable prophet. Read about the miracles. Well, we shall read about them shortly, what Elisha did in the aftermath of that man's ministry. This pause, this persistence with a purpose. Do you know the New Testament opens up and there's been a pause of 400 years. There appears to be no word from God. There's been no prophet like Elijah thundering into the life of the nation. They've had God's word over the years and they've rejected it. They've walked a broad path. And the New Testament opens up with that remarkable account. Oh, 400 years to you and me. Well, <laughs> that's more than a lifetime. <laughs> that's several lives. But to God, it's but a pause to the eternal one, as if to finish, he finishes there in, in Malachi, and he, he kind of goes, <gasps> just draws breath, and then there's John the Baptist coming on the scene, and he's had him in, the, in his purpose and plans all in those years, and now he brings him right to the forefront of things. So, yeah, it's not a long time for God. We get frustrated, don't we? <laughs> I can't wait for the last 15 seconds of the microwave to finish before. I know the food's cooked. I just can't wait. And I just stop it early and just get on with the food. You can't. 400 years. My word. 40 years. No way. No way. Four years. Four weeks. Can't wait. And God takes on his work there. See, he's, he knows what he's doing. He's raising up a new prophet and this new prophet there in the New Testament, John the Baptist, what's he doing? Well, he's just a forerunner again. He's going to do remarkable things in the power of the Spirit. And he's going to baptize for the remission of sins. But he says, hey, look, behold, behold, you don't have to wait any longer. <laughs> the Lamb of God. Uh, you go to him now. You follow him. And what's the, this Lamb of God going to do? Well, he's going to baptize and he's going to baptize with fire. And he's going to baptize in the Spirit. And he's going to transform the known world of his day. And he's still transforming our world of our today as men and women are knowing remission of sins and being born again by the Spirit of the living God. And John the Baptist had to persist, didn't he? Even when those religious leaders came down from Jerusalem. Who are you? <laughs> And who are you? Give an account. And he had to stand alone. And John the Baptist said, well, effectively said what Elisha said, I'm not going to leave you, Lord. I'm not going to, despite what's going on all around, I am not going to 
leave you. Persisting in his purpose. And our Lord Jesus himself, what did he have to do? Well, didn't he have to persist over those three years of his earthly life and ministry when the whole hordes of the devil and the kingdom of darkness were railed against him and even when his own people turned against him, he had to persist there in the lonely experience of Gethsemane. And as he walked outside the city wall to the place called Calvary, he had to persist in his purpose. What was his purpose? Well, it was his father's purpose. I have come to do your will, O God. I have come to be the saviour of the world, the Messiah, the long prophesied one. I am. I and my father are one. One in purpose. And God himself testifies. This is, this is my beloved son. The anointing of God, the spirit is upon him. And Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied, the Spirit of God will be upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and the Spirit of counsel, the Spirit of understanding and the Spirit of power will all be on him. And he has a measure without limit. There's a fullness about the anointing of the Spirit of God. Why is there a persistent? Because it's about what God is doing. It's about who God is about what God does at any one point in history, as well as the eternal purposes that he is going to fulfill before the end of the age. It's all about who he is, why he does what he does, and what the end of all things will be. Uh, It's all pointing us to the future, isn't it? He is the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning, and he is the ending, and God our Father is going to persist against the tide of wickedness and evil in the world, and he's going to hold open the day of grace. He's going to persist in his purposes that men and women still in the tomorrow of our experience might find him for themselves, might know peace, might know forgiveness, might have this hope that you and I have burning within our souls that Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, then we'll see the persistence. We sang about it this morning, about the throng gathered around the throne, singing praises and declaring salvation belongs unto God. He alone is worthy. He alone. And in that remarkable sense, we will begin, I suppose, to understand something of the vast eternal purposes of God. As age succeeds to age, the grace of God and the display of his glory in his kindness towards men and women, uh, it's being seen. Persistence with a purpose. There's a pause here. But secondly, Uh, Elisha here in verse 9, knowing what's going to happen to his master, Elijah, uh, Elijah turns to him and he says, now ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. My word, ask. Has anybody said that to you lately? (laughs) Ask what you will. My word. Well, of course, we can ask what we will, can't we? Uh, It is God determines whether we need it for his purposes or not, or whether we're just being selfish and being greedy and asking very selfishly for something which isn't really going to do us any good. 
It's the wisdom of God that brings the answer, and it is the wisdom of God that comes through the answer here as Elijah asked for a double portion of the Spirit of God. Is Elisha being greedy? Oh, I want everything that you had with God, and I want it all again. I want a double portion. I want twice as much. No, he's not asking to be greedy at all. He's not asking to have twice as much. What he's asking for very simply but very profoundly, he's asking for a continuation. He's asking uh, for a repeat, so to speak, or a second portion of the ministry of the blessed power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that you, O oh God, would continue with me as you did with my forefathers. Have you ever hankered after 1904? Have you ever hankered after those experience meetings or the power of the Word of God? Hankered after churches being filled, going an hour, a couple of hours before the service starts to get a seat because you wanted to be there and you long for it. Grant me a double portion. And Elisha, knowing what's going to happen, he asks for a double push. Oh, Lord, that your spirit will not leave me, that your spirit will continue to strengthen me and to empower me and to enable me to enter into the ministry that you are calling me to, that I, like my master, will not leave you and will serve you unto the end. No, it's not Elijah's to give, is it? He's saying, you ask. But ask for something I can give you. No, it's only, God, only God can do that. Only God can give the blessed Holy Spirit to his servant. And he does. And of course he does. How does he do it? Well, this is remarkable as well. Elijah says to him in response, he says, well, if you see my departure, if you see me going into heaven, if you see God at work in that spiritual, that miraculous, mysterious work of my translation from earth to heaven, if you see it, that will be the confirmation that the Spirit of God is going to fall upon you. You will know it, that you have the anointing that the Spirit of God has already rested upon you. There will be that continuation through your ministry. And verse 12 comes, and Elisha saw it. Elisha saw it, and he cries out, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. And they saw him no more. Oh. Do you know when Elisha saw it? If there was a whirlwind in Clidach this morning... Would only you see it? No, you'd all see it, wouldn't you? If there was a chariot of fire coming down out of heaven, fire, mind you, if there was horses attending that chariot and they were blazing with fire in their tails, wouldn't you see it in Beth, in Clidach this morning? Of course you would. And yet only Elisha saw this, this remarkable translation of his master up to heaven. It's, it's a spiritual reality. It's spiritual sight. It's the work of the Spirit which enables the people of God to see and to have vision spiritually. You don't need natural vision to see things naturally, do you? You've got that through your birth. But to see spiritual truth and reality concerning God, uh, we don't have that by birth, do we? We're shaping in iniquity. Uh, we're, we're rooted in the darkness and the bondage and the guilt of our sin. 
There's, a, there's an oppression, a heaviness over it. And we only, our, our focus of our vision is downward, it's earthward. We don't look up. We don't look up from whence cometh our help. To see spiritually, to have the illumination of light upon your soul for help, for your strength, for your journey, you need spiritual vision. And God shows you things and he doesn't show them to me and he shows things to me and vice versa. He doesn't. And he chooses to do it the way he longs to do it. And Elisha saw it. Oh, boy, we missed it. (laughs) Don't we wish you were there? Well, there was 50 other sons of the prophets there and they didn't see it. They didn't, they weren't far away. They didn't hear the whirlwind. They didn't feel the heat of the flame. They didn't hear the neighing of the horse. They didn't say nothing of it. The spiritual, miraculous, mysterious work of God showing to the world and showing to these 50 prophets that the work of God is continuing through the hand of Elisha as Elisha is taken from them. Because they haven't seen it, of course, they want to send out a search party. Well, that's natural, isn't it? Your heart goes, oh, our master is missing. The least we can do is send out a search party and we'll stay out for three days. Uh, They couldn't find him. Why? Because God has spoken and God has come and taken his servant and God has put his finger upon the new prophet and God has anointed the new prophet. Elisha, you're not going to do the work in your own strength. You will have a double portion. Uh, the ministry will be uh, continued in and through you. My dear friends, what do you see this morning? What do you see? What do you see in the Word of God? Do you see spiritually, or is this just history? Is this His story? Is this His work in the world? Is this His power? Is this the triune God at work in humanity? Is the triune God coming to His people and giving them assurance and strength for the journey? I'm still on the throne, He said. Do you see it? Do you see the Alpha and the Omega of your experience? Do you know that God is already in the tomorrow of your life before you get there? And He is working it out to His praise and His is glory. I best move on. Thirdly, there's this, after the double portion of the prophet, there's this proof. The proof is given of the possession of the Spirit of God. Elisha has asked, and he has been given the blessed Holy Spirit. And uh, these sons of the prophets weren't happy, and, and yet, when they come back after three days of searching, they have to testify that the Spirit of God now rests on Elisha. And so the narrative goes on and uh, they they make this remarkable plea and and Elisha is going to prove to them that he is the new prophet. And so these sons of the prophets come and they make this plea, this urgent request. Uh, They're very upset about the situation they find themselves in. Uh, They're in Jericho and they say to their master, look, Jericho is a very pleasant place. But they say the water is bad and the ground is barren there in verse 19. It's very pleasant. We should be living lovely, successful, happy lives here in Jericho, but we can't because the water is bad and the ground is barren. So what does Elisha, the new prophet, do? Verse 20, he says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And he takes it out of the source of the water and he casts in the salt there. And he says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. 
a remarkable proof of the anointing of the Spirit upon God's servant. It's remarkable because Jericho had been a desolate place. It had the curse of God on it from Jericho, from Joshua's day. And yet it's been rebuilt against the command of God. And you know what architects do with new buildings? They make it very pleasant. It's got all the new materials. It's got building regs. It's got the lovely uh, colors, the fresh colors of, from the paint shop. Uh, it's pleasant. It's a pleasant place. But, but, uh, the water's bad. The ground is barren. Cliddech looks like a nice place to me, pleasant. I was down the Gower last week preaching. Oh, that's, that's a pleasant place to, to go around preaching. That's pleasant. But you know, in conversation with the folks after, they told me that the water was bad and the ground was barren. Even down the beachfront there. The spiritual reality. And here, the prophet Elisha takes the simple thing of salt, speaking to us of the purity the purity of the power of God itself. Speaking to us at the church, you and I are the salt, the salt and the light in the world, seeking to bring the, something of the purity of our Heavenly Father into the barrenness and the badness, the staleness of society because of our sins. See, salt in himself, yes, it's a purifier, we know that. Uh, from, uh, from the natural realm. But in and of itself, just throwing some salt into the source couldn't have brought the healing. See, it's to do with the word of God. It's to do with the power of God. It is to do what God says about his servant, his new prophet, demonstrating the proof of that he has uh, the possession of the Spirit. Thus says the Lord, verse 21, I have healed this water, he says, and from it there shall no more be death or barrenness. What does the Apostle Paul say in the New Testament? He says, well, I've planted, and Apollos has watered. <laughs> well, nothing's happened. Uh, he goes on, but God, God gave the increase. See, it's about the power of God. It's what God does with human vessels. And the Apostle Paul knew the power of the anointing of God from the Damascus Road and, and, and uh, the, the, the Pentecostal uh, experience. The New Testament church knew all about the power of God. They knew all about every grain of salt and every grain of seed which was sown into the ground and into the world. When it is blessed by God, by the hand of God, by the power of God. It brings forth good, spiritual good, and spiritual blessing for the souls of men and women. Oh, our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world and the stream of sin had been flowing down through history ere he came. And you and I know today that the stream of sin is still flowing down into the 21st century of our historical experience. And in his Jesus' day, the water was bad and the ground was barren. And yet he comes. And what does he come? He comes as the perfect, pure, precious, powerful Son of God, the Lamb of God. 
and he pours out his life there at the place called Calvary. The seed of his life goes down into the ground and the river of living water from heaven flows. He goes right back to the source through that perfect atonement for sin and heaven is touched and the spiritual vitality of fresh living water flows from the ramparts of heaven into sin-cursed mankind's experience. And Jesus brings healing. And he brings the blessing for all, for all who will come to him. Calvary was an awful place, wasn't it? It was a dirty, filthy, uh, rotten place. It was a place of crucifixion. The stench of death, the stain of sin was written all across that experience. And yet... Our Lord Jesus Christ at that place, at that place, is dealing, is standing before God for the heinousness of our sin and for the wrath of God being poured out upon sinful men and women. What is being displayed there at Calvary is nothing but the holiness of God. We hold sin very lightly, don't we? We trivialize sin, we... Oh, it doesn't really matter. Oh, no, leave that there. It doesn't really matter. Unfortunately, it matters to God. It, it's not about the nature of the sin itself. Any sin is bad enough before, but it's about the nature of the God who has been sinned against. Thrice holy, we've sung this morning. Holy, 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 thrice holy. And when you sin against a thrice holy God, where do you find help? What can help you to stand in the presence of a pure, perfect being. Uh, well, we have to go to that filthy place called Calvary where all the sins of mankind converge in that spiritual act, that spiritual work of God our Father in punishing his Son. For our sins, he had no sins of his own. And yet he willingly offers himself. His life goes into the ground. And up from the dead he came with resurrection power because death could not hold him. The wages of sin could not be poured out upon him. And he liberated from the power of death and the power of sin and the kingdom of darkness. And he brings it. He brings it. And he pours it out upon him. See, there's no, <clears throat> there's no cheap grace. No, no. It cost him. It cost him everything. He came from the glory of heaven. And he became our servant to serve the unlovely. It cost him everything. That you and I might come and have everything eternally, spiritually, from his gracious hand. It's a pause, chapter 2. It's a window to reflect upon what God is doing and who this God is. Now, your life, my life, your church, my church life, may not much be happening there at all these days. It seems like a pause in the work of God and you wait and time seems to be passing. Well, what this chapter, this pause reminds us of 
there are dangers here as well as the the decree of God. The danger is that we too can become assimilated into the life of the society around us which seems to have the louder voice to shout and it seems to have all the resources and of all the personnel and all the gifting and it seems to be getting on with their lives and the life of the church of Jesus Christ seems to be on a wane and shrinking. It's God's pause. It's telling us of the danger that we must be careful and our testimony must be like Elisha. I will not leave you and I will not forsake you. Despite even 50 sons of the prophets casting doubt on what, the work, what was happening in the work of God. There lies, our there lies our challenge to say to God, I will not leave you and I will stand for you because you are the sovereign Lord God, you are the almighty God. And even though there is a seeming pause in, in, in my life or in my work, in your life and in your work, although that this seems to be what it is, yet this tells me God is still at work. There's an Elisha in the wings. And history will go on. Chapter 3, carry on the narrative. Yet there's more. Why? Because God's not finished with the world yet. God's purposes aren't finished and he is still coming to a 21st century with his love, grace and mercy and pours out his heart of love towards them, declaring that he is in control of all things. And this sense of a pause, it only serves to reveal what's going to happen next. Uh, there's more demonstration of this miraculous life-giving power of God through the ministry of Elisha. Uh, he brings healing. He brings healing to Jericho. Uh, we haven't got time to look at the final few verses, but the other side of this coin is that he brings judgment upon sin as well, wherever it is found. He brings judgment as Elisha pronounces that, uh, uh, that curse upon those uh, young people. So will... Will you, like Elisha, persist with a purpose in the work of God? Whatever that may mean for you, whatever that may mean for your church in your situation, because God is continuing to work, because God is still present. And why? Because the water is still bad and the ground is still barren. <laughs> That's why God is continuing to work. God's purposes aren't yet complete. What are people drinking today? What kind of water are they drinking in their so-called pleasant places? They're drinking humanism. They're drinking pluralism. They're drinking atheism. They're drinking hedonism and materialism and all the rest of it. They're drinking it. They're gulping it down by the gallon and it's all bitter to the taste. The water is bad and the ground is still barren. And yet... Ah, this pause tells me that the grace of God is still at work throughout our world and he is bringing healing and blessing to the whosoever. The dying thief on the cross. <laughs> ah, his water was bad and his ground was barren up to that point. And in, in a moment, today, today, ah, it all changed for him, didn't it? He rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there, as though as vile he was, uh, he had all his sins washed, washed away. Washed away.
thank God today, yes, for our Heavenly Father. I thank God today that it's still a day of grace. It's still a day when God is on the throne. It's still a day when men and women are still experiencing the miraculous power and ministry of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Why? Because Jesus Christ, Son of God, He is the ultimate prophet. He Himself is the source of all things. And he is the living Word of God. And God in these last days has spoken unto us by His Son. He is the eternal one. And so his word ever lives, ever lives, ever lives to minister his glorious blessing into our lives. A pause. There's a pause for a new prophet. And there's a pause, isn't there, from Calvary to the end of the age. There's a huge pause until Jesus comes again. And who is our Lord? He's, he is our King of kings. And he's our Lord of lords. Blessed be his holy name. May God help us to look into the window of God's word. And maybe you and I need to pause and just reflect and just acknowledge, here I stand. I can do no other.